Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, we're going to pick our story back up in the story of the book of Esther. And by way of reminder or in way of introduction, if you're jumping into this journey for the first time with us, uh, last time we were together, we, we met a man, we, we were introduced to a man named Haman, a chief official in the court of the king of Persia. The king is a man named Xerxes, and Haman becomes his top official. And he comes up with this plan, and Scripture tells us this. These are the words of Scripture as it tells us what Haman's plan is to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. As, and this, is, this comes as the result of, of, of a show of disrespect from a man named Mordecai. And Mordecai was the older cousin of the new queen of Persia, Esther. And so we see the king, and the king actually doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. Esther, had, on, on the advice of her cousin Mordecai, has kept her nationality and her family heritage a secret. He tells her, you don't want to say anything. It will go better for you if you just don't tell anybody else where you come from. And so when Haman comes to the, the king with his plan for revenge, the king goes along with it. And he gives Haman his blessing to, to do this thing. And even more than that, he gives Haman the authority of the king of Persia. And what's important about that is that, the, that once something is done in the name of the king, it can't be reversed. It can't be brought back. That once the king says, this is the law, it's the law. And so our text in Esther chapter 4 picks up at this point in the story. We read at the end of chapter 3 that the edict has gone out to all of the provinces across the Persian Empire. That on the 13th day of the last month of the year, all of the Jewish people are to be rounded up and they are to be killed. And as the chapter opens, we start to see the response of the Jewish people to this. And their response, of course, is exactly what you would think it would be. Extraordinary grief, sadness, fear, anxiety. We read this in Esther chapter 4, verse 1, to help us understand. It says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But we see that Mordecai wasn't the only one. If we jump down to verse 3, it says, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, many laying in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I think it's important that we stop here for a second because this kind of display of grief, it's pretty foreign for most of us. See, our, in our modern culture, we, we tend 
not to feel comfortable showing expressions of grief or sadness or, or even really any emotion to that kind of scale. As a pastor, I get to do, have the, the honor of, of doing funerals, of helping people walk through the, the, one of the most difficult days in their life as they mourn the passing of a loved one. And one of the things that I hear readily from families of, of people who've passed away is they will say, I, I don't want to, to speak at the funeral because I'm worried that I might cry. And my, my heart always says, I hope you would cry. If ever there's a place to be willing to, to express our emotion, let's do it here. But we as a culture, we, we like to, to be reserved when it comes to all of this. But what we actually see when we look at Scripture is that Mordecai and the rest of the Jewish people this wasn't some kind of an isolated response to this very scary situation. But what we see in this display was actually something that we find all throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 7, when, when Jacob is told that his son Joseph has been killed, now if you know the story, you know he hasn't actually been killed. His brothers sold him into slavery, but J Joseph's brothers go to their dad and they, they tell him, your son is dead we see Jacob respond like this. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David and his men tear their clothes. They cover themselves in ashes, and they fasted and they wept over the death of Saul and Jonathan and all of the people killed in a battle. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah in their prophecies from God call for the people to put on sackcloth and ashes and cry out to God for their salvation. And there's so many times in the Old Testament where we see different Jewish people mourning in this way. And this is important because it shows us something about Mordecai. See, we know that Mordecai has been hiding his heritage, thinking that this will help him to survive. This will help him to do well in Persia. But he now knows there's no more point in hiding. That when Haman decided to take his revenge on Mordecai and take his revenge on Mordecai's people, Mordecai knows they know I'm a Jew. And so rather than try to, and continue to hide his family heritage and, and feign, well, uh, that's really bad for them, but, and try to pretend like he's not, he joins in with his fellow Jews all across the empire in mourning what was happening to them. Mordecai begins to step back into his heritage, into who he was, into his relationship with the Lord and into his relationship of being a Jew. And instead of hiding, he now knows as, as, a, as an official in the king's court and a Jew, he has to do something to try and help his people. He, he can no longer look towards the best interests of himself. He can no longer just look towards the best interests of his cousin. If he's going to survive this, if his cousin is going to survive this, he has to find a way to help his people survive. 
And he goes to the one person he thinks that can help. The one person who's even further up in the pecking order than him. His cousin, Queen Esther. But before he can even get to Esther, Esther begins to hear what's happening with Mordecai. And she's recognizing, hey, he's, he's mourning like our people mourn. But, but he told me not to do that. He, he told me that we're, not, we're supposed to keep it a secret. We should not be doing that. And so she sends a messenger to Mordecai to say, Mordecai, what's going on? Why are you acting like this? Why are you being public like this? And Mordecai says, and Mordecai fills his cousin in. We read in verse 8, he, that's Mordecai, also gave him, that's a messenger. So Mordecai also gave the messenger a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he, Mordecai, told him, the messenger, to instruct her, Esther, to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. And as Esther receives this message, she sends that same messenger back to Mordecai saying, man, this, it's way more complicated than you think. Because the queen just going to the king wasn't something that she could do. In verse 11, through the messenger, she says this. All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. Anyone, whether they're, they're male or whoever they are, if they come into the presence of the king, there's one law that we have to understand. That they be put to death. Unless the, king or unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Now I want to stop here for a second. There's still more to this verse that we need to unpack. But I want to let you know that, that this really makes sense. Um, this isn't some kind of weird thing. Because there's really only two reasons why someone would want to come before the king without the king knowing they were coming. One, it would be... Uh, they felt a matter of urgency, something that I need to bring before the king. The king needs to hear about this. And two, to try and assassinate the king. Now, I think it's fair to say that based on what we've learned about Xerxes so far, is that he would, doesn't really care what people have to say to him. And so he's not particularly interested in, hey, yeah, if you got an issue, come and talk to me. His... If you got an issue, tough. I don't want to hear about it. So you can make an appointment or I don't want to talk to you. And we also know that people have been trying to kill Xerxes. That we read about that last week. That there are people who are trying to kill him. And so he makes a law. You can't come and talk to me unless I want to talk to you. But there's something else going on here as well. Esther goes on to explain, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
The king hasn't called for her during the day or at night for 30 days. Remember, Xerxes has a harem of hundreds of women. And remember when we talked about Esther being brought to the palace, how all of the other women that were also brought to the palace to see who would be queen, they weren't allowed to go home because the king might decide to call for them one day. And so it seems as if the king at this point isn't all that interested in the queen. And she isn't sure that she's got the sway, that she's got the pull, that that she's got an in with the king to even make this happen. And so she's afraid. To go before the king uninvited is to risk your life. Even if you're the queen. Esther could be sentenced to death before a word even comes out of her mouth, before she can justify for the king why she needs to talk to him, she could be killed. But also remember, at the instruction of Mordecai, Esther hadn't told the king that she was Jewish. But now Mordecai is telling her, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So now Esther has to go before the king, which just that in and of itself could end up with her dying. But then let's say for a moment that the king says, what is it, my queen? I'd love to hear from you. The queen then has to explain to Xerxes, I haven't been entirely honest with you. There's some things about me that you don't know. Now, what we do know is that Xerxes wasn't a man particularly willing to work on his marriage. He he wasn't someone willing to, to talk things through. The last wife, when she refused him, she was banished. And so Esther coming and saying, I have something I need to tell you. That's doubly dangerous. Then she's going to ask him to publicly reverse a royal decree. To publicly say to his whole kingdom, you know that thing that I said? I've changed my mind on that. That was not something that could really be done, but certainly not easily be done. And so Esther is being asked to come and stand before the king, which will get her killed potentially, to admit that she has not been fully honest with the king, which can get her killed, and then ask the king to change his mind, change his public declaration, which the king will kill her for. This is not an easy ask. And so she sends this messenger back to Mordecai. What we're learning or what we're seeing here is 1000 BC texting. 
Is there tech? We would send text messages back and forth. They can't do that. So this guy has to walk back and forth and back and forth and back and forth all day long. Here's the message. Now here's the message. And so this guy is walking back and forth and back and forth. We don't know what he did to do emojis, but we assume that they were probably there somewhere or gifts or whatever that would look like. But this guy is going back and forth and back and forth between them delivering these messages. And so Esther lays out for her like, Your plan needs a little bit of work. It sounds simple, but cousin Mordecai, it ain't that simple. Mordecai responds to her in verse 13. So the messenger comes to Mordecai and says, this is what Esther said. Mordecai says to the messenger, all right, this is what I need for you to go back. And this guy is getting his steps in for the day. So he comes back to Esther after reporting all of that and says to Esther, this is what your cousin Mordecai has to say. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will be or will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. And so Esther sends back one more message. The messenger picks himself up and he begins the long walk back to Mordecai, thinking I should have just got them together for coffee. But the messenger comes back with Esther's message to Mordecai. She says this, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And this is how she signs off her last communication with her cousin. And if I perish... I perish. Here we go. Esther calls for all the Jewish people in the city to come together to fast. And when when it talks about fasting, prayer is implied. That it's not just going without eating. But So when she says call them together for a fast, it's to fast and to pray. To pray for her. But I think... It's not just for her personally, like, like not for her life, like not call all of the Jews together to pray that I just wouldn't die. But I think she recognizes that they're going to need to see a lot of miracles in order for this plan to take place. On every level, the king is in his right and his authority to have her killed. And so every step along the way, they are going to need the miraculous intervention of the God of Israel, or this plan is going to fail. And Esther recognizes that if she's killed, she is their best hope. And if she dies, their best hope goes along with her. So she knows she's going to need supernatural intervention. She knows that her role of being queen isn't close enough to save her people. And so we know that God's name isn't mentioned here specifically. 
But we see that Esther realizes that she's going to need his supernatural intervention and his power at work in order to make this happen. Now, I had thought about ending our, our story here this morning for us. But I thought... We've seen so much hardship in the first three weeks of this series. Let's see if we can end it somewhere with a little bit of light. So we're going to read the first few verses of chapter 5. So it will read like this. On the third day, so after the fasting and the prayer has been taking place, Esther dresses up. She puts on her royal robes. She does the best that she can do to remind the king of who she is, the king who she hasn't seen in over a month, but she gets dressed up to remind the king that, that she is someone special in his life. And she stands in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king is sitting on his throne in the hall facing the entrance. Here it is, the moment of truth. The moment where the law demands that Esther be killed unless the king has mercy on her. Her heart must have just been deafeningly pounding inside of her chest. Her, her knees must have been just knocking. She probably very difficult even to stand, to speak, to do anything. Her life and the lives of all of the Jewish people were at the mercy of what the king was going to do in this moment. The king hadn't called for her. It's been over a month since he had. And so what happens when the king lays eyes on her? He was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Three days people had been praying and fasting. And in this moment, we see Esther being given the gift of her own life. Now all that's left is to ask for the lives of everyone else. And that's where we're going to stop today. But to conclude our time, I want to bring our attention to something that we can learn from Esther and from Mordecai. See, Esther 4.14 is one of the most quoted and popular verses in all of Scripture when Mordecai says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For most of us, if we were to ask, what do you know about the book of Esther? If you know anything about the book of Esther, it's probably the phrase, for such a time as this. But I want to take us to just to what Mordecai says right before he says this. The verse before, when he says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It will arise. Mordecai is placing his faith and his trust and belief in God. And he says, Esther, if you don't do this, it doesn't stop God. 
God will find another way. God can do this with or without you. But Mordecai looks and he recognizes, but the story that's being told here may very well be that you are in the court of the king for just this moment. That God has been telling this story right up till now so that you are there right now to save your people. Maybe all of this has been leading to this moment Maybe not. And if it's not Esther, it will be something else. And if it is Esther, but Esther chooses another path, God is still going to work. It just might be without Esther. But in faith, Mordecai believes that God will save his people, and he thinks that it just might be through Esther. And then I want to remind you of Esther's final words for Mordecai at the end of verse 16. And if I perish, I perish. Esther is saying to her cousin, Look, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to be killed the minute I walk into the room. I don't know if I'm going to be killed the minute I tell the king, I've got a secret I need to tell you. I don't know if I'm going to be told or if I'm going to be killed the moment I say to the king, I need you to change your decision. And I don't know if I'm going to be killed the moment the king says no. And I die with all of my people. I don't know what the end of this is. But if this does mean the end for me, it means the end for me. And I'm going to trust and believe and walk out what I need to do, even if it means putting everything at risk. Reminds me of another Old Testament story in the book of Daniel, where the Jewish people were exiled in a foreign land. Actually, they were exiled in the foreign land that this exile pulled them out of into a different exile. They were in Babylon, and the king makes a command that everyone needs to bow down and worship the king under punishment of being burned to death. And there are three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they make the choice not to bow. And the king brings them before him. And he threatens them with being burned to death in a furnace. And they have the most awe-inspiring response. They say this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we save is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. He can, and we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, if I perish... I perish. These three boys refused to bow. Mordecai believed that God would do something. Esther believed so far that she would put her life on the line. But they are all believing in this without knowing the end of the story. And that, my friends, is trust. Trust is remembering that even in the chaos, God is in control. 
That's what we closed with in the first week. The second week, we learned that trust is knowing that God, that God is great, but that he's also good. And then last time, we learned that even in the darkness, God is always listening. And that's trust. But this week, we need to understand that trusting is also being ready to listen and obey ourselves. Because a lot of times, the answers to our prayers that we pray, that when we pray and ask God to do something, a lot of times, the answer to those prayers are not, all right, just sit back and watch me do it. But the answer that God gives when we ask God is God says to us, okay, here is what we are going to do. Not watch me, but here is what we are going to do. And so for Mordecai and for Esther, God, God, what's your plan? God, we need you to do something. God, we need you to intervene. And God says to them, okay, here's what we are going to do. Mordecai, I need you to step out of hiding. I need you to come out of this, this safety bubble that you've created for yourself, this thing that gives you this artificial sense of, of safety and security. I need you to step out and step out in faith and believe that I can protect you more so than you are able to protect yourself. Esther, you're going to have to be willing to give up everything even if it's to the point of your own life, if you want to see your people saved, this is what we need to do. And so the question I want to ask you today is, is first, what is it that you're asking God for? In your life, what is it that you're praying, God, would you do this? God, I need you to do this. God, God, I'm calling upon your name. I'm asking you. I'm pleading with you. Maybe you've been asking for, for days, weeks, months, years, decades. God, I need you to do this. But then I want to ask you a second question. What are the things that maybe God's asking you to do in response to that? Maybe God is saying to you, you need to love your neighbor, including that neighbor. You need to open your home. You need to invest in that person. You need to share life with them. You need to come to me and confess that sin. You need to write that letter of apology. You need to, to make that phone call to rebuild that burnt bridge. So often we can come to God and say, God, I need you too. And then when God says back, okay, and here's what I need you to do, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Th that wasn't the deal I was asking for. That that wasn't what the deal I was interested in. That wasn't why I was coming to you. I asked you to do something. I didn't ask you to ask me to do something. But here's the thing. God has a plan. And he is inviting all of us to be a part of it. And when we doubt that we have the ability to do the things God has asked us to do, 
we're actually doubting God's ability, not our own. See, God knew what he was going to ask of you from the time before he created you, from the time before he created the universe. He knew you from the very beginning. And he created you with precision and purpose. Scripture will say that he knit you together in your mother's womb. And I'm fond of reminding you that you don't it you don't knit by accident. You don't just take two knitting needles and watch a movie and at the end of it look down and, hey, I got a sweater. It takes intention, it takes purpose, and it takes a plan. And that's how God created you, with intention and purpose and planning. And every day of your life has been lived inside of God's intention, purpose, and plan for your life. And it's all been leading to this moment, and to the next moment, and to the next moment. As God is preparing you to be who he needs you to be, God is preparing you to do what he needs you to do, God is preparing you to be everything he needs for you to be. Everything in your life has been done with an eye towards what he has asked you to do. Friends, for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that for each one here, God, they're not a part of your story by accident. They're not here today by accident. They're not here in this time by accident. They're, they're not living where they live by accident. They're not doing what they do by accident. They're not a product of random chance. God, I thank you that for each one, we know that we have been created with a purpose, that we have been gifted a purpose and calling by our Heavenly Father. And so God, I pray against the voice of the enemy that would whisper, that would speak, that would share to those here that you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're a failure. You can't be what you've been called to be. You can't do what you've been called to do. You've gone too far. You've done too much. You're not smart enough. You're not brave enough. You're not kind enough. You're not strong enough. You are not enough. And God, I thank you that in this moment we can see and recognize the lies of the enemy. And we can recognize that the story that our lives have been telling have been equipping us to be the people that we need to be. And so God, I pray for each one here that just like Mordecai, that just like Esther, as they're confronted with the parts of their life where they may need to step out in faith and be brave, where they may need to step out in faith and leave behind security, where they may have to step out in faith and leave behind the certain and step into the unknown, that they would be able to do so, knowing that you have called, created, and purposed them to do just this. 
God, I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each life here, that you haven't given up on us, that you haven't moved on from us, that each life here, you've got an incredible plan and an incredible purpose for. And God, I pray that for all of us, we would be able to walk out what it is that you've called and created us to do and who it is that you've called and created us to be. And that we would be able to rest confidently knowing who it is that's made us and who it is that has a plan for us. God, help us to trust in you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Smoke clouds all around. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. Your father.